Over the past few weeks, our lives have quickly changed in profound ways. We continue to be committed to care for our patients, provide education for our trainees, and support our family and friends. This special podcast series during the COVID-19 pandemic will bring you perspectives from our otolaryngology community on what is going on in real time. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. This is episode five in the Odo Mentor Pandemic Special Series. This was recorded on April 15, 2020, with Dr. Herman Jenkins, who is the chair of the Department of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Colorado. Thanks for being on the show, Herman. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be part of this. My pleasure. Thank you. So I wanted to know how the COVID pandemic is affecting you personally on a day-to-day basis. Well, I haven't been to the hospital in about three and a half weeks now. The interaction I have for several hours a day with my administrative staff has become a big part of my life. And I'm missing that. We do occasional Zooms. So it's difficult to feel like you're in control of everything when you're working remotely with a few hours of Zooms a day. So it has had a major effect psychologically on how much in charge you feel and the type of job you feel like you're doing. Yeah. And you're not seeing any patients, right? You said you haven't been to the hospital. You're not doing surgery. You're socially isolating. Basically, yes. I chose to, at the advice of some of my senior faculty, to pull myself out of the clinic. I'm at an age now that I'm one of the people that shouldn't be around for these patients. And so I chose to pull out of the clinic. I do mainly a medical practice at this time. So it was easy to do that. And my colleagues in otology are taking care of the workload. So they have pulled out of the clinic except for uh, occasional cases uh, coming in that need to be seen and are doing telemedicine. Yes, because we're only doing urgent cases at this point, which otology cases, for the most part, don't count unless there's some sort of intracranial hypertension or something else bad going on. Right. Yeah. So what worries you the most about this pandemic? How will we recover, I think, is the most concerning thing. We came up to time to distribute the basic incentives uh, for the mid-year, and I was approached by CU Medicine, our organization that's all of our billing collections, with the idea that maybe we need to reconsider this. And it was sort of really, it came to a head that we're really facing something that we haven't faced before, and while we're doing well right now, in three months, it will be, could be a total disaster. And how do we flatten that curve as we're talking about all the time so that this is something the department can ride out is probably, from a chair standpoint, the biggest concern. We're, we're concerned about our faculty. We're really concerned about our residents. No question about that. It's been good to be on the Zoom calls with you and the other uh, educational faculty and the residents just to keep that human touch there and know that everyone's okay. But I think overall, my responsibility is to bring the department through this intact as much as possible. And I have a very good administrative staff. We're working very closely on this. We've been trying to figure out how much of a loss we're going to take. Is this a hit that we can survive? So I think those are the biggest uh, concerns of any chair in the country right now. Absolutely. 
As far as the financial impact you mentioned, so our bonuses were cut 50%, which I think is completely reasonable given the uncertainty of these times. Any other thoughts about the financial situation as we go forward? Well, we elected to withhold the bonuses by 50%, not cut them. That is in a fund that if we come through well and we don't have a major disaster, that we will be able to distribute those funds to the faculty at a later date. And hopefully we can do that. As a faculty member that depended on incentives in the past, I fully understand what the faculty are going through with this, and it is a significant hit, but we're trying to modify the hit that we're getting now as a smaller hit and then a smaller hit later as opposed to give everybody money now and three months from now we have no salary coming in, we eat up all of our reserves, and it becomes a disaster for the department. The school, I think, was offered a lot of advice as far as that goes. They're very concerned about that. They know that our practice plans are going to take a hit. We'll have three months, essentially, without doing elective surgery. In otolaryngology, most of our surgeries are elective. You can't survive three months uh, and have a normal year end uh, a year from now. So these are type of things that my team are working on. We've gone through a lot of projections, how much we'd anticipate each month dropping for the first three months and then the, the first six months. Hopefully within six months, we're back up to normal levels. So far, it looks like we are doing okay, that we won't really go into a hole that eats up all of our reserves. In the university here, we are required to have 10% of the faculty salaries overall. Uh, this is base plus supplement in reserves. And this is really not a lot of money. We figure out what we're actually paying faculty. This is a small amount. And it doesn't last that long if you've got suddenly paid the big salaries to faculty and you eat up those reserves within two or three months. So that's the thing we're trying to avoid at this point. We are looking at ways that we can move funds around to cover people from various other funds to preserve state funds to, to be used to help with the emergencies, etc. And that requires a lot of strategizing, which I've been fortunately able to have three really top-notch uh, administrative staff that know their areas and working with me to project these things out. Besides the financial implications, what other changes do you foresee happening in the department as, as we move forward and recover? That's a, a good question. Uh, how much social distancing really affects us long term? For instance, uh, we have a party scheduled June 12th for about uh, 130 people to have dinner together and celebrate the a chief residence ending five to seven years of work with us. This may well have to be canceled. We're sort of holding in there to see if, we, if things are going to be recovered and we can get back to normal. But really, that's just a few weeks away now. And to be able to bring 100 people together, people traveling to, to their son or daughter's graduation exercise, so to speak, uh, becomes difficult. We no longer get the faculty and residents together. None of the residents really get together other than the individual hospitals. So how do you bring suddenly 50, 60 people that are working intimately 
different hospitals come together as a large group uh, with cross-contamination. Those are major concerns. Are we going to get back by fall? Are we going to have a resurgence in the fall? All those things have to be considered. So our life for the next year has changed until our vaccine's out there that looks like it's going to be fine. But these are things that are in the back of our mind. At this point, you know, can I go out safely to have dinner at a restaurant? All of our lives have changed for the last month. We would not have believed this two months ago that suddenly we'd be doing the things that we're doing today. Yeah. So, you know, you've been around a while. You've been chair for 20 years, right? Yes. Do you think this reflects, I've heard some people talk about the HIV epidemic in the 80s. Do you feel some similarities with this? Similarities in the fact that we were afraid. We were afraid to take care of HIV patients. Basically, mid-80s when it came out, we didn't know how it was transmitted, all those type of things. If you had someone come in was positive, immediately you donned gloves and you instructed the nurses and the assistants that uh, to be careful with the cerumen loops and all those type things. So you made sure no needles were left in there just because you were concerned about the transmission from accidental punctures. Here, we're concerned very similarly. It's not the needle or those type things, but just walking in into a room and with a patient and breathing the air that the patient has been breathing is a threat. And we know it's a threat. We don't see it. It's sitting there, and you don't know you've been exposed. So it's just walking down the street. You don't know what's going to happen just walking by uh, someone that's coughing. It's a similar type fear of personal safety, of everyone around you being safe, except this one has more social isolation for each of us. My wife and I have been in the apartment together now for three weeks. Our kids come by occasionally for something. We sit in the hallway. They pick it up in the hallway, and we wave down the hall. So it's changed how we interact with people. Suddenly, it's not if I don't touch you or I don't get punctured, I'm okay. It's not there. Just being in the same room with you is a threat. And that psychologically works on all of us. It psychologically is impacting everyone in the department. It's this social isolation that leads to depression. All these type things, we think our people are all great. They're secure in themselves and really going to take this on. We don't know what goes on behind the smile. And every time I have a meeting, I always close the Zoom with reach out to each other. And you're doing that with the residents because we don't know how much, how social isolation is impacting them individually. And it's hard to pull that out of them unless they're willing to open up and talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing right now. Do you think as we go back to practice that this is going to have long reaching effects on how we practice medicine? So for example, do you think we're going to have to operate on Saturdays and Sundays to catch up? Do you think that people are going to want to come back and have elective procedures since, you know, 90% of our procedures as otolaryngologists are elective? What do you predict for that? I think it's going to be a slow transition over the next three months, deciding who is it safe to bring in? Uh, are we going to be able to screen them before they go into the OR with something that has a high sensitivity rate? A lot of false negatives are there as a major concern right now. 
but it's definitely going to be a slower ramp up than we would anticipate. We think we have a backlog of hundreds of people waiting for surgery and they're going to come crashing in the doors. Maybe, maybe not. If you had something that just was an irritant, that you're going to limp around a little bit more for another month or two. I think we're all thinking of those type things. Am I ready to go into a place where they take sick people and where people die of a disease that we don't know if they have it or not? Those are all major concerns for us as, as physicians. It's major concerns for the patients coming in. Are they going to be flocking and beating down our doors? I think it's going to be a slow beating at first. And after three or four months, it'll flood in. They'll feel comfortable again and we'll be back to norm. Maybe. If there's still cases being diagnosed and people still dying in July, August, uh, that's going to have long-term effects. And then people worry about this surfacing again in the fall. So this is something we need a, a vaccine for in a hurry, but we still have another year plus uh, to get one of those out. There's no question. Yeah. So how are you personally staying sane after being in your apartment for three and a half weeks? Well, you know, my wife and I haven't spent this much time together, I don't think ever. <laughs> and surprisingly, it's been good. I think we both realize this is a stressful time. We've snapped each other a couple of times, then we backed down and commented each other, we need to stop that. And it's actually been very pleasant, almost rekindling of a relationship. And I think certainly we've helped each other a lot in that respect. We miss our kids who are, are middle-aged adults now coming by and coming in, hugging us and talking to us for a few minutes. And we are concerned about them because they are single, living individually in an apartment. So those things rest heavily. But overall, I think uh, we're in good shape as far as what we're doing. I've lost five pounds. <laughs> and that sounds, how'd you do that? Because I've been eating my own cooking. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I've heard you're a pretty good cook, though. Well, no, I've been cooking very good meals, but suddenly we have a lot of coffee and we get up in the morning, so we get around to a late brunch and then a late afternoon dinner. Sometimes we just a little snack dinner because we had a late brunch, and so both of us are dropping weight, which is one benefit. <laughs> but, you know, I think those are things that have helped out. I've taken breaks with playing words with friends and those type things, just because it's my jigsaw puzzle type uh, activity. I'm doing walks in the afternoon, go out and walk two or three miles on the, the warm sunny days. So yesterday's a little chilly. Yeah. So those are things that I've used to get through this. Plus there's enough Zoom calls to sort of keep you interacting with people during the days that you are reaching out and talking to people and finding out whether they're okay, those type things. So that's how I've been getting through this. Great. Have you talked to other chairs around the country about what they're struggling with? I have not. There is a listserv going around now of chairs writing what they're doing as far as how they interact, how are they dealing with doing tracheostomies, what type of PPE they're using, etc. But no one is reaching out on a personal level at this point. I did reach out to some of the, the doctors in New York. I think they were pleased that we were thinking about them. One of the uh, chairs there was actually pulling, it's an otologist pulling ER rotations, spending 12 hours a day in the ER. So they were stepping up to the line there. Fortunately, we haven't gotten to that level here, and hopefully we won't get there. 
but it's been a disaster in many of those hospitals for the medical personnel. You right. really feel for the frontline people. Yeah, absolutely. What else would you like to add? I think this is a weird time in all of our lives. It's one that we need to learn from, one that perhaps we need to learn to reach out to others more, understand that people are going through things, that we need to appreciate the people around us. I went to uh, the grocery store and coming through the line, I just think that the uh, checkout person there, for what they did, I said, I'm a physician, I know what we're going through, and you're going through similar type things. You're facing people every day and scared. And, you know, we need to appreciate that about the people around us. We tend not to thank all the people doing the menial jobs and truck drivers and the postmen, all these type things. But they're facing many of the same things, but they still are there passing things back and forth manually, all those type things. And uh, I think we need to take this as a lesson that people are human around us and try to reach out, to be thoughtful. And to me, that's the thing that I think I've gained most from all of this. Yeah, showing gratitude. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been fun. Enjoy talking with you. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy.